Welcome, welcome to today's Law of Self-Defense show. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're always so generous with your applause. Well, we're back at the Second Amendment. In fact, we're back at Bonta. Duncan versus Bonta, the California case going through the federal courts around the topic of standard capacity magazines. And you may be getting tired of this topic, and I'm sorry, but it's just not going away. Uh, I covered it in three different shows a week or so ago, and it's back in the news today with the Ninth Circuit en banc simply raping the Second Amendment. It's terrible. With no reason, certainly no legal reasoning, in open defiance of the U.S. Supreme Court. So a little refresher on how we got here. Way back when, Virginia Duncan sued the state of California in federal court, sued California in the person of their attorney general, Becerra. The name has changed now. There's a new attorney general, Bonta. So that's who's being named in these decisions now. But Duncan versus Becerra, Duncan v. Bonta, it's all about California's ban on high-capacity magazines, standard-capacity magazines. So California currently has a 10-round limit on magazine capacity. And Virginia Duncan was unhappy with this. She sued California in federal court, saying that this standard magazine capacity limit was a violation of her Second Amendment rights. And the trial court agreed and ruled the law unconstitutional. Well, the state of California did not like this, so they appealed that verdict to a three-judge appellate panel, which is the normal process in such things, and the three-judge appellate panel agreed with Virginia Duncan that California's 10-round magazine limit was unconstitutional. California didn't like that either, so they caused the decision to go en banc, to go to a broader panel of the Ninth Circuit. Whenever this happens with Second Amendment favorable rulings, the broader panel of the Ninth Circuit invariably spews a bunch of word salad to uphold whatever infringement of the Second Amendment California would like to have. Guaranteed. And I've read these decisions before in other shows. They're always word salad decisions lacking legal reasoning with the conclusion written beforehand and just a bunch of words to fill in the pages. So there's some hand-waving going on that this could have been a legally reasoned decision. It never is, folks. At least in the past, in the past, the courts were being allowed to engage in what's called interest balancing, which means they could balance the claimants, the citizens' Second Amendment rights against the interest of the state in societal safety. So you could argue that at least the Ninth Circuit had that to hide behind. After it went en banc and the Ninth Circuit reversed the federal trial court and reversed the three-judge panel and found that California's 10-round magazine limit was not an infringement of the Second Amendment, something happened. And what happened was Bruin. Bruin, the Supreme Court decision that explicitly said interest balancing cannot be done in the context of the Second Amendment. Instead, the courts are obliged, compelled, commanded by the U.S. Supreme Court to discard interest balancing when it comes to Second Amendment infringements and instead look at the history and tradition of gun regulation in America. If a state wants one of its gun control laws to be found to be valid and not an infringement of the Second Amendment, it needs to be able to find a historical and traditional precursor, analog to that modern regulation. And if they can do that, a historical traditional analog that would have been acceptable to the founders. Well, then the modern state limitation on the Second Amendment could also be found to be constitutional and not an infringement of the Second Amendment. But if they can't find a historical and traditional analog, well, then the the restriction on the Second Amendment is unconstitutional on its face. And when Bruin decided that, when the U.S. Supreme Court decided Bruin, they also told the Ninth Circuit, hey, You've got to reconsider Virginia Duncan's complaint in light of the new standard in Bruin. You can't do interest balancing anymore. It has to be history and tradition. So Virginia Duncan's case went back to the original federal trial judge who wrote a lengthy 
lengthy opinion, which we read in a two-part series of shows. The first was this one, available at the lawofselfdefense.com slash blog. You do need to be a member to access that at this point. Uh, And then we did a second show on the same trial court's reconsider. Remember, this is the same trial court that found the ban, the magazine ban, unconstitutional in the first place under interest balancing. Well, he really found it unconstitutional under Bruin. So this is part two of that decision. Uh, Then it went back to a three-judge panel. Um, In fact, it didn't go back to a three-judge panel. It was supposed to go back to a three-judge panel. Uh, That would be the normal process. Go back to a three-judge panel, but it didn't. The Ninth Circuit decided en banc to simply take the case immediately without the intervening step of a three-court appellate hearing. And there was a dissent written to that decision by the Ninth Circuit in Bank, a very, very strong dissent. And in fact, I wrote about that here as well. All of this is happening in the last week or so, folks. So well worth reading. The, the dissent of the en banc panel felt very strongly that this was inappropriate to go en banc and suspected that the Ninth Circuit was going to do what we now know it absolutely did, simply spew an anti-Second Amendment word salad decision, which is what we're going to talk about today. Today, we're going to talk about this this decision handed down on October 10th. So I'm recording this show ahead of time for work reasons. So um, this should air on October 12th. On Friday, this was handed down the the prior Wednesday, two days earlier. That's what we'll be reading today. The actual, and what it does, spoiler alert, what it does is reverse everything and find that California's 10-round magazine band is just hunky-dory with the Ninth Circuit. Do they apply the analysis requirements of Bruin? Do they look at history and tradition in coming to this conclusion? They do not. They do not. What they do instead is they engage in interest balancing. That's it. So what they're doing here is Ensuring, of course, that this will go to the U.S. Supreme Court. What's the U.S. Supreme Court going to do about this? Well, we know what they did after their Heller decision. After Heller, the first of the major modern Second Amendment decisions out of the U.S. Supreme Court that favored the Second Amendment, uh, the, the, the federal appellate courts were in open rebellion against Heller. And then McDonald, and then Catano, Are they going to be allowed to be an open rebellion against Bruin? Because that's what they're doing here. Make make no mistake about it. And the interesting part about this isn't so much what the Ninth Circuit majority wrote on Bonk. It's only a few pages long and it's word salad. What's really interesting is the dissent. The dissent does the analysis that the Ninth Circuit should have done here. And the only legally sound conclusion is that California's magazine ban is unconstitutional as has all the legal, the actual legal analysis to date concluded. Uh, There's a second dissent. It's actually the first of the two. That's only a few pages long. Uh, It's rather, its complaint is more administrative, kind of a procedural. um, And I'm sure it has its own legal merits, but I probably won't read that part because it's kind of inside baseball court procedure stuff. It's, It's the core second amendment arguments that are of interest to me. Before we jump into that, however, I do, of course, have to mention our sponsor. The sponsor of today's show is none other than CCW Safe. They are one of the self-defense legal coverage firms out there, what many people call self-defense insurance. None of these companies are are really insurance, um, but that's the common name for them. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of various companies offering self-defense insurance type services. Um, Most of them, many of them, are just hot garbage. They're just worthless. Um, some of them are oh, good people, but in my view, under-resourced. Some of them are just can't be trusted at all. The only one I trust is CCW Safe. I'm personally a member of CCW Safe. They cover myself. They cover my wife, Emily. It's the only one of these companies that I would even consider spending money on to be a member. If you'd like to learn why, why I trust CCW Safe and CCW Safe only for this kind of legal services coverage, I would encourage you to point your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash trust. And I have a short video there explaining how I've arrived at this conclusion. 
lawofselfdefense.com slash trust. Thank you, CCWC, for your ongoing support of everything we do here at Law of Self-Defense. Greatly appreciated. Ba-ba-ba, Virginia versus Duncan. And of course, folks, I, I always caution that I my expertise is really use of force law, not Second Amendment law. I'm fortunate to know some great attorneys who are world-class on the Second Amendment. Uh, some of them are involved in this litigation in particular. They've been guests on the show. Uh, Costamaros is one of those. Uh, perhaps I can get him on again to talk about this if, if he's got the free time. Actually, he probably can't talk about it because he's one of the litigants, I believe, supporting one of the litigants. Um, he did just submit a uh, amicus brief on another uh, Second Amendment case, and that'll go on the air for law self-defense next week. My, my reading of his amicus brief. He does great work. Big fan. All right. So Virginia Duncan versus Rob Bonta, Attorney General, United States. This is the en banc majority decision that, of course, is going to favor the state of California in its efforts to infringe. They'll call it a non-infringement. Regulate um, standard capacity magazines in California. Keep the limit at 10. And um, here we go. California Penal Code Section 23. Sorry, Section 32310A creates criminal liability for any person who manufactures or causes to be manufactured, imports into the state, keeps for sale or offers or exposes for sale, or who gives, lends, buys or receives a large capacity magazine, which is defined as any ammunition feeding device with the capacity to accept more than 10 rounds. California Penal Code, Section 16740. Plaintiffs, five individuals, and the California Rifle and Pistol Association filed this action in the Southern District of California challenging the constitutionality of Section 32310 under the Second Amendment. On September 22nd, 2023, the district court issued an order declaring 32310 unconstitutional in its entirety and enjoining California officials from enforcing the law. On September 26th, Defendant Rob Bonta, the Attorney General of California, filed an emergency motion for a partial stay pending appeal. The Attorney General seeks to stay all portions of the order, excepting those regarding sections 32310C and D, which relate to large capacity magazines that were acquired and possessed lawfully prior to the district court's order, granting a permanent injunction. Uh, We grant the motion. So to translate that into English, folks. When the trial court again heard these arguments for the second time, now applying the Bruin standard of history and tradition, it concluded, as it says here, that California's standard capacity magazine ban was unconstitutional. It enjoined any government officials from enforcing it, so they they, they couldn't punish anybody now for buying a high-capacity magazine. Uh, The attorney general requested a stay of that order for a few days so they could appeal, The trial court granted, I believe it was a 10-day stay that would expire October 2nd. And then the state scrambled to get the Ninth Circuit on Bonk to extend that stay so they could hand down this decision. Had that not been done, the and of course, immediately the Ninth Circuit said, yes, we're, we're extending the stay until we can hand down this word salad. Had they not done that on October 2nd, the standard capacity magazine ban would have lapsed and Californians w- would have ordered Magpul 30-round magazines into the state by the millions. So the fact that the Ninth Circuit en banc extended the stay until they could hand this down, and this, of course, just reverses the prior ruling and sustains the, the magazine ban, uh, that, that window of freedom that might have existed for California did not occur. So now they're deciding whether to um, essentially keep the magazine ban in place while, of course, this gets escalated now to the U.S. Supreme Court. Continuing now with this decision. When deciding whether to grant a stay pending appeal, a court considers four factors. Whether the stay applicant has made a strong showing that he is likely to succeed on the merits, whether the applicant will be irreparably injured absent a stay, whether issuance of the stay will substantially injure the other parties interested in the proceeding, and where the public interest lies. Now, right away, we have a violation of the current understanding of the Second Amendment, where the public interest lies. That's interest balancing. Balancing the state's interest against the interest of of the citizen 
asserting an infringement of the Second Amendment. Bruin says you can't do that anymore. That used to be the standard before Bruin. It was permissible. But Bruin says, no, no, no more. No more interest balancing. And yet they're going to backdoor interest balancing to infringe, continue the infringement, California's infringement of its residents' Second Amendment rights by applying interest balancing in this day that keeps the infringing law in effect. The Ninth Circuit says, here, a stay is appropriate. First, we conclude that the Attorney General is likely to succeed on the merits. I mean, this is such utter nonsense, and they never explain why, by the way. This decision doesn't explain why they believe that. There's no legal reasoning here. In New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, the Supreme Court reiterated that, like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. Yeah, they did say that. No right is unlimited. But they also said, and this is how you determine whether or not a limitation is an infringement. Did the Ninth Circuit en banc apply that legal analysis here? No. The decision continues. The Attorney General makes strong arguments that Section 32.310 comports with the Second Amendment under Bruin. Really, what are those arguments? They don't specify even one. One of the strong arguments, supposedly strong arguments, of the Attorney General that comports with the Second Amendment under Bruin. They don't mention one. What they do mention here is a lot of holdings from other courts, other trial, federal trial courts in other states that say that the magazine restrictions are okay or infringements of the Second Amendment are okay. But none of those are binding on California. They're not, they're not binding authority in favor of the attorney general's position. They continue. Uh, yet only one of those courts, the Southern District of Illinois, granted a preliminary injunction finding that the challenge was likely to succeed on the merits. And then they list a whole bunch of these other non-binding, non-presidential decisions from trial courts. Uh, in that case, the Seventh Circuit subsequently stayed the district court's order pending appeal, the very relief the attorney general seeks here. Again, none of this is binding on the Ninth Circuit. Second, the attorney general has shown, and by the way, not only is it not binding on the next circuit, but it has not reached final adjudication. Those decisions are going to the Supreme Court too. Continuing now. Second, the attorney general has shown that California will be irreparably harmed absent a stay pending appeal by presenting evidence that large capacity magazines pose significant threats to public safety. This is interest balancing, folks. It's not permissible after Bruin in the context of the Second Amendment. Continuing, if a stay is denied, California indisputably will face an influx of large capacity magazines like those used in mass shootings in California and elsewhere. True, but interest balancing. Continuing, as plaintiffs concede in 2019, when the district court first enjoined Section 32310, decades of pent-up demand unleashed and Californians bought millions of magazines over 10 rounds. I think it was all in a week, folks. Essentially buying the nation's entire stock of them in less than one week. Third, it does not appear that staying portions of the district court's order while the merits of this appeal are pending will substantially injure other parties interested in the proceedings. This stay does not interfere with the public's ability to purchase and possess a wide range of firearms, as much ammunition as they want, and an unlimited number of magazines containing 10 or fewer rounds. Well, this is just nonsense. The whole point of the federal lawsuit is that the citizens have a right, a constitutionally protected right to standard capacity magazines. That's the harm. The harm is not them saying, I can't buy other guns or other ammunition or, or limited capacity magazines. The harm is that you're infringing my constitutional rights by not allowing me to possess, buy, sell standard capacity magazines. That is the harm. That's incurring now. Finally, so it's just a straw man argument. Continuing now. Finally, we conclude that the public interest tips in the favor of a stay. Interest balancing prohibited after Bruin in the context of the Second Amendment. The public has a compelling interest in promoting public safety as mass shootings nearly always involve large capacity magazines. And although the public has an interest in possessing firearms and ammunition for self-defense, that interest is hardly affected by this day. 
In some, we conclude that a stay pending appeal is warranted. We emphasize that at this stage of the litigation, we decide only whether to stay, in part, the district court's order while this appeal is pending. Some of our colleagues have raised procedural questions regarding the propriety under circuit rules and practices of the en banc panel's decision to accept this appeal as a comeback case. In other words, taking it right from the most recent trial court decision, finding the standard capacity magazine ban unconstitutional, instead of going to a three-judge panel, as would normally be the case, the Ninth Circuit just grabbed it themselves so they could issue this decision. Those procedural contentions are without merit, they say. <laughs> they're, they're, they're declaring their own violation of their own procedures to be just fine. The Supreme Court has held that the governing statute leaves it to each court of appeals to establish the procedure for exercise of the en banc power. In this circuit, matters arising after remand are directed to the en banc court, which will decide whether to keep the case or to refer it to the three-judge panel. Here, the en banc panel has exercised its discretion to keep the comeback appeal as our rules contemplate. When a case is heard or reheard en banc, the en banc panel assumes jurisdiction over the entire case, uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, one of our colleagues raises novel questions about whether our rules are consistent with 28 U.S.C. 46C. This appears to be a vulnerability for them, folks. So they don't want to address it here. <laughs> so they're, they're putting it off. We have asked the parties to brief these issues and we'll address them in due course. Hmm, maybe. The Attorney General's emergency motion for a partial stay pending appeal is granted. Now we have Judge Nelson, one of the en banc panel. He's dissenting, but largely on procedural grounds. I, I will, of course, uh, embed the PDF of this decision in the Law of Self-Defense blog post version of this, of today's show. Excuse me. So you'll be able to read this procedural stuff there if you're interested. I'm sure it has legal merit, but I want to get to the juicy stuff. <clears throat> and it's Circuit Judge... Bumente, joined by Akuta, Nelson, and Van Dyke. So of the 11-judge panel, four of them are joining in this dissent. Reading now from the dissent. If the protection of the people's fundamental rights wasn't such a serious matter, our court's attitude toward the Second Amendment would be laughably absurd. For years, this court has shot down every Second Amendment challenge to a state regulation of firearms, effectively granting a blank check for governments to restrict firearms in any way they pleased. We got here by concocting a two-part tiers of scrutiny test, which permitted judges to interest balance away the Second Amendment guarantee. But this approach was nothing more than a judicial slate of hand, feigning respect to the right to keep and bear arms, but never enforcing its protection. Several of us warned that our precedent contradicted the commands of both the Constitution and the Supreme Court. We cautioned this very panel of the need to jettison our circuits a historical balancing regime and adhere to an analysis more faithful to the constitutional text and its historical understanding. But our warnings went unheard. Last year, the Supreme Court had enough of lower courts' disregard for the Second Amendment. It decisively commanded that we must no longer interest balance a fundamental right and that we must look to the Second Amendment's text, history, and tradition to assess modern firearm regulations. That, of course, was in Bruin. Now, firearm regulations may stand only after the government affirmatively proves that they are part of the historical tradition that delimits the outer bounds of the right to keep and bear arms. Despite this clear direction, our court once again swats down another Second Amendment challenge. On what grounds? Well, the majority largely doesn't think it worthy of explanation. Rather than justify California's law by looking to our historical tradition as Bruin commands, the majority resorts to simply citing various non-binding district, federal trial, court decisions. There's no serious engagement with the Second Amendment's text, no grappling with historical analogs, no putting California to its burden of proving the constitutionality of its law. All we get is a summary order even after the Supreme Court directly ordered us to apply Bruin to this very case. The Constitution and Californians deserve better. At issue here is California's ban on so-called large-capacity magazines, California Penal Code Section 32310, 
These magazines refer to any ammunition feeding device with the capacity to accept more than 10 rounds. California Penal Code Section 16740. California law prohibits manufacturing, importing, selling, receiving, or purchasing these magazines. The law also punishes possessing large-capacity magazines with up to one year of imprisonment. The law requires persons who possess this type of magazine before July 1, 2017 to remove, sell, or surrender the magazine. California's ban on large-capacity magazines has moved up and down the federal court since 2017. That year, several California citizens challenged the law's constitutionality. Two years later, the district, trial, federal trial court, ruled that the ban was unconstitutional. On appeal, a three-judge panel affirmed that decision in 2020. Our court took the case en banc in 2021. A majority of that 11-judge panel reversed, holding that interest balancing favored the constitutionality of the law just as we have done for every firearm regulation that our court has encountered. All four of us dissented from that decision. The Supreme Court vacated our en banc interest balancing and remanded for further consideration in light of Bruin. That was 2022. Our en banc panel then remanded the case to the district court again in 2022. The district court again ruled that California's large-capacity magazine ban violated the Constitution, this time using the clear instructions from Bruin. That decision was on September 22, 2023. That's the one we read in the two-part series of shows a week or so ago. In a thorough 71-page opinion, the district court held that magazines were protected arms, under the Second Amendment, and that California failed to meet its burden of showing a historical analog for the prohibition. The district court enjoined California officials from enforcing Section 32310. At California's request, the district court stayed its order for 10 days. California then appealed to our court. It now seeks an emergency stay of the injunction pending appeal. In an unusual move, our en banc panel retained the emergency stay motion as a comeback case in the first instance, bypassing our traditional three-judge consideration of motions. Indeed, it's perhaps the first time our court has ever done so. The majority then granted an administrative stay, with four judges dissenting. Now a majority of the en banc court grants the stay pending appeal, with little analysis or explanation of Bruin's requirements saving California's ban on large-capacity magazines yet again. Three times now, the Supreme Court has warned courts not to treat the Second Amendment as a disfavored right in Heller, McDonald, and Bruin. We should follow the Supreme Court's direction. Reviewing our historical tradition consistent with Bruin demonstrates that the Second Amendment does not countenance California's ban on large-capacity magazines. Because the majority once again deprives Californians of a fundamental right, we respectfully dissent. Section 1. The Second Amendment's Text and Historical Understanding The operative clause of the Second Amendment commands that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It codifies a pre-existing fundamental right, one rooted in the natural right of resistance and self-preservation. Thus central to the Second Amendment right is the inherent right of self-defense, and the right is so deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition that it is fully applicable to the states, as decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in McDonald. Despite lower courts' treatment of the constitutional provision for many years, the right to bear arms is not a second-class right, subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. The Second Amendment is not subject to any judge-empowering interest-balancing inquiry. That's from Bruin. That's because the very enumeration of the right takes out of the hands of government, even the third branch of government, the power to decide on a case-by-case basis whether the right is really worth insisting upon. That's quoting Heller. The court thus rejected the two-part means and scrutiny test adopted by our court. In its place, the Supreme Court directed lower courts to follow a fairly straightforward methodology centered on constitutional text and history. Under this framework, courts are guided by the plain text of the Second Amendment, and when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. 
Of course, this does not mean the Second Amendment's textual elements give people the right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever or for whatever purpose. So what do the Second Amendment's textual elements convey? First, when considering the people protected by the Second Amendment, ordinary law-abiding adult citizens are easily encompassed within the term. Second, arms refers to weapons in common use today for self-defense. Such a definition excludes dangerous and unusual weapons. And arms does not mean only those arms in existence in the 18th century. Instead, it covers modern instruments that facilitate armed self-defense. Third, keep and bear denote the course of conduct protected by the Second Amendment. In Bruin, the ordinary definition of bear naturally encompasses carrying handguns publicly for self-defense, and at a minimum, keep encompasses the possession of firearms in the home at the ready for self-defense. If the course of conduct at issue falls within the textual elements of the Second Amendment, then the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. The burden then falls on the government to prove that the firearm regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. To answer this question, we must engage in reasoning by analogy, a commonplace task for any lawyer or judge. Thus, courts must determine whether a historical regulation serves as a proper analog to modern firearm regulations, and whether a historical regulation is a good fit as a historical analog depends on whether they are similarly similar. In turn, we judge similarity based on the how and why of the two regulations. That is, whether modern and historical regulations impose a comparable burden on the right of armed self-defense and whether that burden is comparably justified are central considerations when engaging in an analogical inquiry. In conducting our inquiry, the court left us with a warning. Quote, the Second Amendment is neither a regulatory straitjacket nor a regulatory blank check. Close quote. That's from Bruin. While we are under no duty to uphold every modern law that remotely resembles a historical analog, this inquiry requires only that the government identify a well-established and representative historical analog, not a historical twin. So while the government doesn't need a dead ringer for historical precursors, it also cannot satisfy its burden by resorting to historical outliers. To illustrate how this methodology works, we can look to the courts, the Supreme Court's analysis of New York's public carry law in Bruin. New York sought to justify its restricted public carry licensor scheme by referencing, one, colonial and founding era common law offenses prohibiting unpeaceable public carry, two, mid-18th century proscriptions on concealed carrying of pistols and other small weapons, and three, mid-18th century surety or insurance statutes that required certain individuals to post bond before carrying weapons publicly. The court understood these historical regulations to raise the kinds of public safety concerns raised by a strict public carry requirement. But because none operated to prevent law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from carrying arms in public for that purpose, they could not suffice to establish a relevantly similar analog. Finally, before turning to the application of this law to this case, we address a criticism often lodged at the court's so-called text, history, and tradition approach, the confusion between history and tradition. What do history and tradition mean in this context? Do they mean something different? Well, when assessing analogous regulations under the Second Amendment, it is relatively straightforward. History means that analogous laws must be sufficiently long-standing and from the relevant time frame. That's because not all history is created equal. History's role in this inquiry is to help establish the public meaning of the Constitution as understood when the people adopted it. Thus, historical evidence that long predates ratification of the Second Amendment may not illuminate the scope of a constitutional right if linguistic or legal conventions changed or became obsolete in the intervening years. Likewise, we must also guard against giving post-enactment history more weight than it can rightly bear. The further we depart from ratification, the greater the chance we stray from the original meaning of the constitutional text. Thus, the court tells us that the public understanding of the Second Amendment from only two historical time frames is relevant. 
from the adoption of the Second Amendment in 1789 and from the ratification of the 14th Amendment in 1868. Thus, laws enacted after the end of the 19th century must be given little weight. Tradition, on the other hand, connotes that the comparison must be to laws with wide acceptance in American society. Take territorial restrictions. The court considered them unhelpful for historical analysis because they were transitory and short-lived. Such passing regulatory efforts by not yet mature jurisdictions do little to show what is part of an enduring and broad American tradition of state regulation. This is all the more true because territorial laws governed less than 1% of the American population at the time. Tradition thus demands that we don't justify modern regulations with reference to outliers, such as a law from a single state or a single city that contradicts the overwhelming weight of other evidence on the meaning of the Second Amendment right. On the other hand, laws that enjoyed widespread and unchallenged support form part of our tradition. With this understanding of the Second Amendment, we now turn to the emergency motion. And folks, I just want to pause here for a moment. If you're listening to this in podcast form, uh, you won't catch this. If if you're watching the text in in the video of today's show, uh, you may have noticed how much of this dissent is actually just quotations from Heller, McDonald, and Bruin. In other words, it's, it's extensively, maybe a majority, of the text in this dissent is simply quoting the U.S. Supreme Court's own language in Heller, McDonald, and Bruin. You, you can't get more robust and legally sound legal reasoning from a federal appellate court judge because, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court is the authoritative judicial body in American law. All right, proceeding now with the dissent. Section two, California is not entitled to a stay. I caution, this is the dissent, so this is not the ruling. The state of California moves for an emergency stay of the injunction against enforcement of the state's large capacity magazine ban pending appeal. On review of a stay pending appeal, we must determine whether California has made a strong showing that it is likely to succeed on the merits. Two, California will be irreparably injured absent a stay. Three, issuance of the stay will substantially injure the other parties interested in the proceeding. And four, whether the public interest lies with a stay. The first two factors are the most critical. The last two factors become relevant only if California establishes the first two, and they merge into one inquiry assessing the balance of the public and state interests. Ultimately, the issuance of a stay is a matter of discretion, and California bears the burden of showing that the circumstances justify an exercise of that discretion. None of these factors support California's request for a stay. Taking seriously that a stay is not a matter of right, we thus should have denied the state relief. Subsection 2A. California's magazine ban has no likelihood of success. California cannot succeed on the merits of this appeal. As a recap, to determine whether a modern regulation survives a Second Amendment challenge, we first determine whether California's regulation burdens conduct within the amendment's textual elements. If so, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct, and the burden shifts to California to establish that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. To meet this burden, California must provide sufficient historical analogs to show that the regulation may escape the Second Amendment's unqualified command. California's large-capacity magazine ban fails under this framework because possessing magazines holding more than 10 rounds of ammunition by law-abiding citizens is protected conduct under the Second Amendment, and California has failed to show that the ban aligns with our historical tradition of firearm regulation. Sub-sub-section 2A1. Large-capacity magazines are protected arms under the Second Amendment. To start, California half-heartedly suggests that large-capacity magazines are not arms under the Second Amendment. We can easily dispense with this argument. The term bearable arms includes any weapons of offense or thing that a man wears for his defense or takes into his hands that is carried for the purpose of offensive or defensive action. Magazines are included within that definition. 
Without protection of the components that render a firearm operable, like magazines, the Second Amendment right would be meaningless. After all, constitutional rights implicitly protect those closely related acts necessary to their exercise. If not, then states could make an easy end run around the Second Amendment by simply banning firearm components, such as magazines and ammunition. Our court has thus recognized a right to possess the magazines necessary to render firearms operable. Firearm magazines, including those holding more than 10 rounds, fall into that category. And it makes no difference that large-capacity magazines did not exist at the time of the founding. While the Second Amendment's meaning is fixed according to the understanding of those who ratified it, the Constitution can and must apply to circumstances beyond those the founders specifically anticipated. Thus, the Second Amendment extends prima facie to all instruments that constitute bearable arms, even those that were not in existence at the time of the founding. So it is the common possession of large-capacity magazines that governs our analysis, not their specific historical pedigree. Subsubsection 2A2, titled Large-Capacity Magazines Are Commonly Possessed for Self-Defense. California mainly argues that large-capacity magazines are not in common use for lawful purposes like self-defense. We take this question in two parts. Further, whether large-capacity magazines are in common use. Second, whether they are used for self-defense. Sub-sub-sub-section 2A2A, titled Common Use. Both as a matter of modern statistics and historical analogy, large-capacity magazines and their analogs are in common use today and were at the time of the Second Amendment's incorporation. While estimates vary, it is undisputed that more than 100 million large-capacity magazines circulate in the United States. One recent study cited by the district court found that Americans own 542 million magazines that hold more than 10 rounds today. And this fact isn't surprising, given that those magazines are standard component on many of the nation's most popular firearms, such as the Glock pistol, which commonly comes with a magazine that can hold 17 rounds. They are lawful in at least 41 states and under federal law. They account for half of all magazines owned in the United States today. And as a historical matter, the initial three-judge panel in this case rightfully concluded that firearms or magazines holding more than 10 rounds have been in existence and owned by American citizens for centuries. Firearms with greater than 10-round capacities existed even before our nation's founding, and the common use of large-capacity magazines for self-defense is apparent in our shared national history. We briefly chronicled the history of firearms firing more than 10 rounds in the United States in our previous en banc descent. From this history, the clear picture emerges that firearms able to fire more than 10 rounds were widely possessed by law-abiding citizens by the Second Amendment's incorporation. In that way, today's large-capacity magazines are modern-day equivalents of these historical arms. Sub-sub-sub-section 2A, 2B titled Lawful Purpose. While acknowledging that large-capacity magazines are commonly owned in this country, California argues that these magazines are not in common use for lawful purposes like self-defense. California's argument goes like this. Because an average of only 2.2 shots are fired in self-defense situations, magazines carrying more than 10 shots are not used for self-defense. There are two main problems with this argument. First, as an empirical factual matter, the district court's findings undercut the state's argument. After examining the record, the district court concluded that California's 2.2 average shot statistic was suspect. Such a statistic, the district court said, lacks classic indicia of reliability and is based on studies that cannot be reproduced and are not peer-reviewed. Instead, the studies used by California's expert relied on anecdotal statements, often from bystanders, reported in news media, and selectively studied without any aid of investigatory reports. The district court also noted that the state's expert found that though it is exceedingly rare for a person to fire more than 10 rounds in self-defense, that is not never, and California's 2.2 statistic is only an average in those rare situations. In this emergency appeal, California doesn't contend that the district court's factual determinations are clearly erroneous, and we are bound by them. Second, and more importantly, California misunderstands the lawful purposes inquiry. 
As discussed below, the Supreme Court has never looked at the average number of times that a handgun had been fired in self-defense to determine whether it is commonly used for that purpose. Likewise, it is unnecessary to look at how often a law-abiding citizen fired a firearm more than 10 times to fend off an attacker for our inquiry. Indeed, it would be troubling if our constitutional rights hung on such thin evidence. And California's conception of a firearm's use is overly cramped. While use will encompass the number of times the firearm is discharged, it is not limited to that. Use will also cover the possession of a firearm for a purpose even if not actually fired. Our criminal laws don't require the discharge of the firearm for it to be used. That's like saying we don't use our seatbelts whenever our cars don't crash. And that a citizen did not expend a full magazine does not mean that the magazine was not used for self-defense purposes, further undermining California's focus on the 2.2 statistic. It is also immaterial that large-capacity magazines are not strictly necessary to ward off attackers. Lawful purpose, not necessity, is the test. And so it is not dispositive that a firearm or its components is not used to the full extent of its capabilities or that it is not absolutely necessary to accomplish its purpose. Indeed, we are glad that most law-abiding citizens never have to discharge their firearms in self-defense. Rather than going down this statistical rabbit hole, the Supreme Court looked to Americans' overall choice to use a firearm for self-defense. Take Heller and the District of Columbia's handgun ban. The court didn't dissect statistics on self-defense situations or look at anecdotes of a handgun's use in self-defense. Instead, it is enough to note, the court observed, that the American people have considered the handgun to be the quintessential self-defense weapon. To the court, it was sufficient that the handgun was overwhelmingly chosen by American society for the lawful purpose of self-defense. Thus, banning from the home the most preferred firearm in the nation to keep and use for protection of one's home and family would fail constitutional muster under any standard of review. So whatever the reason for its popularity, we look to Americans' choice to use a firearm for self-defense to find its purpose, not finely cut statistics of shots fired or news clippings. And unless it can be proven that a certain firearm is unsuitable for self-defense, we must respect the people's choice. Here, large-capacity magazines are the most common magazine chosen by Americans for self-defense. Indeed, millions of semi-automatic pistols, the quintessential self-defense weapon for the American people, come standard with magazines carrying over 10 rounds. That many citizens rely on large-capacity magazines to respond to an unexpected attack is enough for our inquiry. Even our court has begrudgingly admitted as much, meaning the Ninth Circuit en banc. In some, firearms with magazines capable of firing more than 10 rounds are commonplace in America today, and they are widely possessed for the purpose of self-defense, the very core of the Second Amendment. Accordingly, an overwhelming majority of citizens who own and use large-capacity magazines do so for lawful purposes. Under our precedence, that is all that is needed for citizens to have a right under the Second Amendment to keep such weapons. Sub- Subsection 2A3, titled, The Large Capacity Magazine Ban is Not Consistent with the Nation's Historical Tradition of Firearm Regulation. Once it is established that large capacity magazines are protected arms used for lawful purposes, California has the burden of showing that its ban on large capacity magazines is consistent with this nation's historic tradition of firearm regulation. To meet this burden, California must show historical regulations that are analogs to its modern magazine ban. We recently explored how this comparison works. In determining whether the modern regulation and the historical analog are relevantly similar, we must look to the how and why of the two regulations. That is, whether modern and historical regulations impose a comparable burden on the right of armed self-defense and whether that burden is comparably justified are central considerations when engaging in an analogical inquiry. California points to four historical analogs to defend its absolute ban on large-capacity magazines. One, regulations on trap gun contraptions. Two, regulations on the carrying of fighting knives and certain blunt objects and on the concealed carry of pistols and revolvers. Three, 
regulations on the use and possession of fully automatic and semi-automatic firearms and ammunition feeding devices, and four, regulations on the storage of gunpowder. But these historical analogs do not even come close to the relevantly similar laws required by the Constitution. Sub-subsection 2A3A, titled Laws Regulating Trap Gun Mechanisms. California first points to regulation on trap gun mechanisms as a historical analog for the banning of large-capacity magazines. These trap gun devices refer to string or wire contraptions that allow a firearm to be discharged remotely when triggered, without a user present. According to California, 16 states had laws against trap gun devices, with the laws being enacted after the 1870s, except for a New Jersey ordinance dating to 1771. The New Jersey law, for example, prescribed a most dangerous method of setting guns when the gun is rigged in such a manner as to discharge itself or be discharged by any string, rope, or other contrivance. Even if these laws are temporally relevant and could be considered part of our tradition, there's an obvious problem with California's comparison of trap gun devices to large-capacity magazines. Trap gun devices are not a firearm or even part of a firearm. According to California's expert, the devices are made from string or wire hooked up to firearms. So it's doubtful that trap gun devices themselves fall within the arms protected by the Second Amendment. But even if we viewed trap gun contraptions as subject to the Second Amendment's protection, the burdens of regulating trap gun mechanisms are not at all analogous to the burdens of banning large capacity magazines. These anti-trap laws only prescribe the method of discharging of a firearm remotely. None work to punish the possession of any firearm or necessary firearm component, nor did they restrict a person's direct use of a firearm for self-defense or limit the number of bullets a person may discharge from the firearm. So these laws are not relevantly similar to California's ban on the most common magazine used in the nation. Sub-sub-subsection 2A3B, titled, Laws Regulating the Carrying of Fighting Knives and Blunt Objects and the concealed carry of pistols. California next justifies its ban by looking at laws regulating the carrying of bowie knives, long-bladed knives, clubs, and blunt weapons, and the concealed carry of pistols. According to California, in the 1830s, four states enacted laws barring the carrying of bowie knives, which later expanded to most states by the 20th century. California's expert also asserts that several states enacted anti-carry laws for clubs and other blunt weapons. Finally, California claims that by 1868, about a dozen states had laws prohibiting carrying concealed pistols. These historical analogs also fail to meet California's burden. Again, assuming the laws are historically relevant and part of our tradition, most of these statutes suffer from a similar flaw. They did not ban the possession of a weapon. Indeed, they mostly regulated the open or concealed carrying of certain knives, clubs, or firearms. As for laws on knives and clubs, they dealt mostly with carrying, concealed carry, or taxes. In its emergency motion, California identifies no specific historical law banning the possession of a knife or club. As for the concealed carry pistol laws, the district court concluded that none prohibited keeping pistols for all lawful purposes or carrying the guns openly. Nor has California identified laws banning the possession of a pistol at home. On the other hand, we agree with the district trial court that it is remarkable that no law categorically banning all law-abiding citizens from keeping or possessing a firearm existed during the relevant time periods. According to one scholar cited by the district court, the first regulation prohibiting all law-abiding citizens from simple ownership of a gun came in 1911, too late for our purposes. California argues that this distinction makes no difference, that we should treat anti-carry and anti-possession laws as equivalent. But that ignores both Heller and Bruin. In Bruin, we are told that the central consideration in assessing historical analogs is whether modern and historical regulations impose a comparable burden on the right of armed self-defense and whether that burden is comparably justified. In fact, the court in Bruin rejected insurance laws that required certain persons to post bond before carrying weapons in public as being insufficiently analogous to restrictions on public carry law for law-abiding citizens. 
It did so because the surety laws did not amount to a ban on public carry, and their burden on public carry was likely too insignificant. And in Heller, the Supreme Court made clear that the need for defense of self, family, and property is most acute at the home. The Second Amendment then surely elevates, above all other interests, the right of law-abiding responsible citizens to use arms in defense of hearth and home. Thus, prohibitions banning from the home the most preferred firearm in the nation to keep and use for protection does not pass constitutional muster. Contrary to the state's contention, the distinction between anti-carry and anti-possession laws is critical. The former limits only the way a person may use a firearm in public. The latter categorically denies all possession of a firearm for any purpose, even at home. While restrictions on carrying a firearm, whether open or concealed, are a significant burden, the burden of prohibiting a large-capacity magazine anywhere, including in the home for self-defense, is greater in kind and magnitude. Indeed, we recently rejected a similar argument when Hawaii made it illegal to possess butterfly knives. We noted that laws banning carrying a weapon are different than laws banning possession because they regulate different conduct. Thus, when confronted with statutes that regulated only the carry of knives, we considered it more important that Hawaii had not identified a statute categorically banning the possession of any type of pocket knife. Sub 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 section 2A3C titled Laws Regulating Fully Automatic and Semi-Automatic Firearms and Ammunition Feeding Devices. California next argues that 20th century restrictions on automatic and semi-automatic firearms and ammunition feeding devices act as historical analogs. California groups a wide range of laws in this category. Some focus solely on semi-automatic weapons capable of firing a set number of rounds. Others on only fully automatic weapons, more still covered firearms of both types. The one commonality for all these laws is that they were all enacted after 1917, with most passed after 1932. Thus, they cannot serve as historical analogs justifying a large-capacity magazine ban. Given their recent vintage, these regulations offer little support for the original public meaning of the Second Amendment. To be clear, post-ratification history can be relevant to show how meaning has been liquidated and settled but we must be careful not to give post-enactment history more weight than it can rightly bear. Immediate post-ratification history is the strongest at illuminating the understanding of those steeped in the contemporary understanding of a constitutional provision. But evidence from later in time diminishes in relevance. Otherwise, we risk adoption or acceptance of laws that are inconsistent with the original meaning of the constitutional text to overcome or alter that text. Thus, the Supreme Court has largely cabined our inquiry to the period through the end of the 19th century. Here, the restrictions on automatic and semi-automatic firearms and ammunition feeding devices are far too late to shed meaningful light on the original meaning of the Second Amendment. Laws passed nearly half a century after the ratification of the 14th Amendment do little to clarify what was understood when the constitutional text was adopted. Plus, to the extent that these laws ban automatic weapons or features of automatic weapons, like machine guns, such weapons are not analogous to large-capacity magazines. Those weapons function differently, have a different historical lineage and record of use, and offer a different type of hazard than large-capacity magazines. Accordingly, automatic weapons would warrant a separate consideration of history and tradition under the Second Amendment. These laws thus offer no relevance for large-capacity magazines, which are in common use today, and analogous to arms in common use at the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment. Sub-subsection 2A3D, titled Laws Regulating Gunpowder Storage. California lastly relies on 18th and 19th century gunpowder storage laws. Concerned with the dangers of massive fires and explosions, the laws prohibited the stockpiling of large quantities of gunpowder in one place. Take the 1784 New York City law. It made it unlawful to have or keep any quantity of gunpowder exceeding 28 pounds weight in any one place less than one mile to the northward of the city hall, except in the public magazine at the Freshwater. Another 1821 Maine law did the same for prevention of damage by fire. 
These gunpowder storage restrictions fail to establish a historical tradition supporting a large-capacity magazine ban. First, these laws do not offer a comparable burden on the possession of a firearm or the way it is discharged. While California's ban on large-capacity magazines is directed at prohibiting a firearm from firing more than 10 rounds at once, the gunpowder laws were only directed at preventing the accumulation of explosive material. Foreclosing gun owners from using the most common magazine is a starkly greater burden than limiting the storage of gunpowder for fire safety. In other words, gunpowder storage laws would have a minimal effect on law-abiding citizens' use of firearms for self-defense. The same cannot be said for limits on firing more than 10 rounds at once. Indeed, the Supreme Court was well acquainted with these gunpowder laws at the time of Heller. Justice Breyer, in dissent, referred extensively to these laws as an analog to the District of Columbia's handgun ban. But the court rejected that comparison. Quote, Justice Breyer cites gunpowder storage laws that he concedes did not clearly prohibit loaded weapons, but required only that excess gunpowder be kept in a special container or on the top floor of the home. Nothing about those fire safety laws undermines our analysis. They do not remotely burden the right of self-defense as much as an absolute ban on handguns, close quote. Likewise, those fire safety laws do not create a comparable burden to the absolute ban on the most owned magazines. Based on this analysis, no historical analog justifies California's ban. It thus will not succeed on the merits. Sub-subsection 2B. Titled, California's Asserted Irreparable Injury Does Not Justify a Stay. Beyond likelihood of success in the merits, California also fails to establish a sufficient irreparable injury to warrant a stay. At this junction, the government has the burden of showing that irreparable injury is likely to occur during the period before the appeal is decided by the Supreme Court. Often a state might suffer a form of irreparable injury when it is enjoined by a court from effectuating statutes enacted by the representatives of the people. But that doesn't always settle the question. We've long said that the government cannot reasonably assert that it is harmed in any legally cognizable sense by being enjoined from constitutional violations. With this background, California cannot make a strong showing of irreparable harm sufficient to tip this factor in favor of a stay. California argues that without a stay, large capacity magazines would immediately flood the state. But as we've said, California does not suffer any harm by being prevented from infringing Second Amendment rights. Even still, nothing in the district court's injunction prevents California's enforcement of its rigorous background registration and prohibited person laws. Moreover, we cannot ignore large capacity magazines' ubiquity elsewhere in the country. As stated earlier, it is undisputed that over 100 million large-capacity magazines exist nationwide, with some estimates being five times that number. They account for half of all magazines nationwide. Likely, tens of millions of these magazines already exist in other parts of the Ninth Circuit. Indeed, the majority even concedes that Californians purchased millions of large-capacity magazines in 2019. Given the widespread popularity and common usage of large-capacity magazines, we need not defer to California's speculative prediction of catastrophic harm. Given these considerations, California has not made a sufficient showing of irreparable harm. Subsubsection 2C, titled, The Balance of Interest Favors No Stay. For the balance of interests factor, we generally explore the relative harms to an applicant and respondent, as well as the interests of the public at large. Given California's failure to satisfy the first two stay factors, we don't need to address this factor. But even if California could meet the first two stay factors, it still cannot prevail on the last. We acknowledge that California has a legitimate interest in promoting public safety and preventing gun violence, and in general, the state may enact laws to further those aspirations. We also don't doubt California's sincere belief that large-capacity magazines may pose particular threats to public safety. For example, California points to statistics showing the use of large-capacity magazines in mass shootings. While California's concerns are serious, they are not enough to tip this factor in favor of a stay. We reach this conclusion for three reasons. First, it is always in the public interest to prevent the violation of a party's constitutional rights. 
California's ban deprives its citizens of the ability to fire a gun more than 10 times in self-defense. Contrary to the majority's claim, the existence of a wide range of firearms, which cannot fire more than 10 rounds without reloading, does not mitigate that deprivation, so the public interest favors denying a stay here. Second, as stated above, California can have no legitimate interest in enforcing an unconstitutional ordinance. So any conversation about the importance of the state's interest in public safety and the prevention of gun violence ends when the means used to further them violate the Constitution. Thus, California cannot point to a strong interest on its side. Finally, we cannot forget that the Supreme Court has very clearly ended interest balancing when it comes to the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment, the court said, is the very product of an interest balancing by the people, and it surely elevates above all other interests the right of law-abiding responsible citizens to use arms for self-defense. It is this balance, struck by the traditions of the American people, that demands our unqualified deference, and we cannot backdoor interest balancing through the stay factors. Thus, while we understand the right to bear arms controversial public safety implications, that does not give us license to ignore its unqualified command. The balance of public and state interest is clear. It weighs against granting a stay. Section three. Over and over, our circuit has enjoined government actions that would lead to the deprivation of constitutional rights, much like the district court did here. We have done this for the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, and the Fifth Amendment. Today, the majority proves yet again that our court treats the Second Amendment as somehow inferior to the others. But the right of the people to keep and bear arms cannot be dismissed as second class. This court has repeatedly acquiesced to the violation of Californians' right to bear arms. Now it does so again without even analyzing the merits of this case enough should be enough. We respectfully dissent. There we go, folks. Think it was respectfully? That's dozens of pages of legal analysis in dissent that would hold a firm that California's standard capacity magazine ban is unconstitutional under Bruin compared to how many pages for the majority decision that lacked any relevant legal reasoning on the merits of the case. It was, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, six pages, compared to roughly 30 pages of the dissent. But that's how the Ninth Circuit does things. It spits out word salad when it wants to continue infringing the Second Amendment. All right, folks, that was the reading of Duncan v. Bonta, the en banc Ninth Circuit decision, uh, staying the lower court order, trial court order that enjoined the state from enforcing its standard capacity magazine ban. So that ban remains in effect until this matter is heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. If it's heard by the U.S. Supreme Court, I don't know if they've granted certiorari yet on this. It certainly should be heard. Otherwise, the U.S. Supreme Court is essentially allowing the lower federal courts to be an open rebellion and violation of the Second Amendment rights of um, American citizens. All right, folks, that's it for today's show. I just want to remind all of you that if you carry a gun for self-defense, if you carry a knife, maybe a butterfly knife for self-defense, if you carry pepper spray for self-defense, if you study jujitsu for self-defense, So you're hard to kill. So your family is hard to kill. I do all those things so that me and my family are hard to kill. Then you also owe to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.